This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, the books, and and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you that you have given to us your holy and perfect word. And Lord, your word uh, is filled with both words of grace to us and words of truth, both of which we need to hear. And so, Lord, as we uh, give our minds to this uh, magnificent topic of the judgment of the last day, uh, we pray that you uh, would give us clarity and uh, that we would be devoted to the truth of what you've said to us and And that these words would shape our lives, that they would lead us to to trust in Christ more deeply and and to be grateful for all that he has done for us and and would also call us to lives of obedience, that we would follow you and serve you in our lives. And so be our teacher now by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we are uh, talking about one of the great themes of the scriptures and, and the, the Christian worldview is the final judgment. And uh, this is the reality that at the end of history, every human being who ever lived will appear before God and give an account to God for how they have lived their life. For every thought, every word, and every deed will be brought into account. And I know that for many people, uh, they wish that there was not going to be a final judgment. You know, people don't like accountability in their lives, and this is like the great uh, uh, act of accountability before God. And so people say, well, I don't believe in the God of the Bible because he's a judge. And then, you know, that same person, though, will in the next minute say, and you know, I'll tell you another reason I don't believe in the God of the Bible, because there's all this evil and suffering happening in the world, and he's just sitting up in heaven, and he's not doing anything about it. And so you say, okay, you don't believe in God because he is a judge, and you want him to end all the evil and suffering, which means you want him to come and be a judge. So I don't believe in him because he is a judge, and I don't believe in him because he's not a judge. And you say, well, there's a contradiction there. Well, uh, that Contradiction is actually touching on an important truth about God's judgment. um, It's that it's not that God doesn't judge, but that God is slow to judge. The Bible repeatedly says about God that he is slow to anger and he's patient. In fact, the reason God is taking so long for final judgment to come is because he's giving people time to turn to him. He's patiently giving them time to turn from their lives of sin and to turn and embrace his grace. And, uh, but there is a coming day 
when God will confront the evil and suffering of the world, and it's a day that must happen and we cannot ignore it. And so today I want to help us to understand the doctrine of, of final judgment and um, by looking at this great passage from, from Revelation chapter 20. And, uh, and I want to do that by making three observations about this text. And this is what they are. Is that final judgment dignifies every human, being, every human life. Second, final judgment involves both grace and works. And third, final judgment is essential for the healing of the creation. So three things I want to point out for this passage. That final judgment dignifies every human life. It involves both grace and works. And that final judgment is essential for the healing of the creation. My hope uh, uh, today is, is for us to move in our thinking from thinking that final judgment is this really unpleasant doctrine that we just wish wasn't in the Bible to something that we've really internalized as being an essential component of God's good and loving character. And so that's, that's our hope for today. So three points this morning on the doctrine of final judgment. And the first is this, that final judgment dignifies every human life. Final judgment dignifies every human life. And you see how this passage begins there in verse 1, how it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Now, in that first verse, I know that it sounds like that at the final judgment, God is going to destroy the universe because it says that earth and sky were fled away and there was no place for them. And when we, if you come back next week, we're going to talk about the new creation, and I'm going to explain why. I don't think that's what that's describing, God destroying the universe. But I will say briefly here, you see that phrase how it says, no place was found for them? That's a quote from Daniel uh, chapter 2, verse 35. And if you look back in Daniel chapter 2, you'll find that the removal of the earth and the sky is actually the removal of the great kingdoms of the earth. And so basically what this is saying is that in the final judgment, the destiny of whole civilizations and whole empires, you know, the destiny of the United States of America and China and Russia or the, or the Roman Empire in the ancient world, all of that doesn't matter to God. There's no place for any of those empires. What matters to God is is individual human lives. People, you know, people like little old you and me are what matter to God. And why do individual human lives matter more than the United States of America? It's because your existence will infinitely exceed the destiny of the United States of America. Your existence is far longer. And uh, C.S. Lewis has a, a famous sermon called The Weight of Glory where he talks about the final judgment. And he makes this point. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What Lewis is hitting on is that final judgment is one of the most important things that say that every single human life that's ever lived, your life matters to God. It matters deeply to God. You are not just some bag of juices that has no real meaning. You're just, I'm just matter, you know, that's kind of walking through the world. That's not what you are. 
God takes you deadly serious. And final judgment dignifies every human life. And, And one of the main ways that final judgment does that, that this passage says, is that it flattens the difference between the great and the small in the world. It flattens the difference between the great and the small. You see that there in verse 12, how it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. The great and the small all become the same size when they're standing before the great white throne of of the God of heaven. And so it doesn't matter if you were a peasant living in Afghanistan, killed by Genghis Khan's army in the 13th century, or if you're the king of England. It doesn't matter. Either one, you become the same size when you're standing before the throne of God Almighty. And uh, in fact, before the throne of God Almighty, there's going to be some great reversals of who was great and who was small on that day of judgment. There's going to be some poor missionary woman who none of us have ever heard of that courageously gave her life in service to her master and her love for her neighbor and who loves Jesus, who is going to be highly honored on that day before all the angels and greatly esteemed. And there are going to be others that we all thought were important in this life. You know, they're probably like a YouTube influencer or something who will be publicly shamed and we realize that their life meant nothing. And there's going to be a huge reversal of the great and the small. And you'll notice how verse 12, it mentions there the books. What are the books? God has kept a biography of every person's life. He remembers everyone. No matter how insignificant of a life, he remembers every life. And that's, um, and that's really amazing. Um, actually, one of my, my favorite movies is, uh, is the Pixar movie Coco, uh, which is about the Day of the Dead. And uh, even though I totally disagree with its vision of the afterlife, it, um, uh, it's really a great story. And basically, the movie says that in the afterlife, there's kind of these two directions you can go. You can go to the land of the remembered, or the lands of the forgotten. And, the, uh, and if your family remembers you and they keep pictures of their ancestors and they talk about you, then you get to go to this city, which is the land of the remembered, and it's colorful and everyone's alive there and they're partying and they're singing music. And then, but if, if, if everyone forgets you, you, you kind of turn into this shadow or a vapor that goes into the lands of the forgotten. And uh, one of the main storylines is that there's this famous musician, Ernesto de la Cruz, who has all these fans, and he made you know, record albums, and he made movies, and so he has all these fans after he dies who still remember him. And so he comes into the land of the remembered, and he's still rich and famous because people are remembering him even after he dies. Um, but there is this scene in the land of the remembered where there's this poor old man who's in a hammock, and he only has one person left living who remembers him, and that person finally dies. And he just turns into a vapor and just disappears into the land of the forgotten. And you see the difference between the small and the great in that system, that the great are remembered and the small are forgotten. How different is the God of the Bible? He remembers each life, great and small. And it's not our families, it's not our, you know, our descendants who are going to remember us, it's not our fans, it's not the history books that remember us, it is the Lord who remembers us. In this life, only the rich and famous get biographies written about them. But in God's throne, at God's throne, all of us have biographies written about us. 
And I always think, you know, how long is it going to take to do final judgment? You know, you think of all the people who ever lived, the billions of people, and he's got a biography of every one of them. And it's a great act of love. You know, if, you, if someone's ever listened to your life story, taken the time to say, I want to hear your life story, it's a great act of love. God is going to do that for everyone. And in front of innumerable angels, they're going to have to listen to all of that. It's going to be a public setting. The Lord will take the time to do it for each of us. And so the first thing about final judgment is that it dignifies every human life by saying we matter to God and by flattening the difference between the great and the small. Now that might give uh, dignity to every human being, but many people would say, I don't want the Lord telling my biography in public (laughs) to everyone. I don't want to undergo that kind of scrutiny for my life and the things I've thought, the things I've done, the things that I've said. That would be terrifying. And I think there's no way that you can read the Bible and not say that when you think about final judgment, it should stir in all of us a sense of fear and trepidation. Well, I think that's why it's helpful for understand, to understand a second thing about final judgment. So first we see that final judgment dignifies every human life. Second, that final judgment considers both grace and works. Final judgment considers both grace and works. Now, in this passage, you'll notice that there are two kinds of books mentioned. We already talked about the books, plural, which is the biographies of all the people who have ever lived. But then it says there in the second part of verse 12, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And my reading of this passage is basically there are two options for us in the final judgment. If your name is written in the book of life, you will be judged according to grace. If your name is not written in the book of life, you are judged by the works that you did that are recorded in the other books and the biographies. And so I want to explain each of those kind of two paths, okay? So the first is that those in the book of life are judged by grace. Those in the in the book of life are judged by grace. And again, these people are mentioned in the end of the passage of verse 15, where it says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so the people who are spared the lake of fire are the people whose names are written in the book of life. And you might wonder, well, how do you get your name written into the book of life? Well, this is important. Nowhere does Revelation say that you get your name in the book of life by doing good works. In fact, earlier in Revelation, it says something far more radical than that. And if you turn over to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it describes people who worshipped the beast. The beast was kind of the idolatry of the Roman Empire. And this is what it says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This is a profound statement. It says the names in the book of life were written before the foundations of the world, before the universe was made, before you were even born, before you even did anything good or bad. Having your name in the book of life is not something you can earn by being good. It is a gift of God's grace that can only be received as a gift. And the evidence that your name is in the book of life is that you have a persevering faith in Jesus Christ. 
So you can have an assurance that your name's written in the book of life, but the only way is if you have a persevering faith in Jesus Christ. And so uh, what that means is that Christians, as Christians, we do not put confidence in our good works. Actually, there's, a, there's another uh, place in the Bible that describes the final judgment. It's, uh, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 25, and he says, you know, on the last day, Jesus is going to be sitting on his throne, and all the nations are going to be gathered before him, and he separates the nations into the sheep and the goats. And the sheep are the ones who are going to inherit eternal life. And he says to them, uh, you know, you are the, the ones who have been blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from before the foundations of the world, which it's very similar language to Revelation. And so he, and then he says to them, you know, because when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was hungry, you fed me. And uh, when I was naked, you clothed me and you visited me in prison. And it's very interesting what the, how the sheep respond to that. Because if you know the story, what do they say? They say, when did we do that? When did we give you something to drink or feed you? Or I don't even remember doing that. And and what's amazing is it shows that their focus was not on their good works. They did not come into judgment saying, you know, I look at all the good things I did. I'm pretty confident God isn't going to accept me. They weren't even thinking about their good works. Why? Because what they were focused on was God's grace to them. And they were just grateful. They were living their life out of gratitude for God's grace and what he had done for them. And I'll tell you, I, I'm a pastor. Lord willing, I'll spend my whole life serving Jesus and his church, and when it comes to my dying day and I'm prepared to enter into glory, I will have no confidence in my good works. My confidence is that Jesus loved a sinner like me. His blood is sufficient to take away my sins, and my hope is not in my righteousness, but in his righteousness. And when that happens, when all of us are received into God's presence, not because of our good works, but because of his grace, who gets the glory? It's not us. It's him. And our hearts will just be so filled with gratitude and we'll blush and we'll weep because we'll be like, wow, I can't believe I have been welcomed and I'm so grateful and we will love Jesus all the more for it. Okay, so on the one hand, we see those in the book of life are judged by grace. But on the other hand, we see a second thing also that those not in the book of life are judged by their works. Those not in the book of life are judged by their works. And you see the last part of verse 12 there. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And Jesus you know, says in other places that we will be judged for every careless word that we speak in our life, which is a profound statement. You think of all the words that you've spoken in your life, things that you've said to people that have hurt people. There will be an accounting for every word. And the Apostle Paul even says that we will judge, be judged for the secrets that are in our hearts. Like things we didn't even say to people, this is really what we loved and what we desired and what we thought about. All of that will be laid bare. And as Christians, we will have to give an account for what we've done in this life as well. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so that means as Christians, all our sins are going to be publicly named also. And what's going to happen is that each one is named, it's going to be judged, forgiven, covered by the blood of Christ. Another sin, covered by the blood of Christ. Another sin. And as each one is listed and we realize 
how broad the blood of Christ has been to cover sins that we didn't even realize how sinful we were. And what's going to happen again is we're going to be filled with gratitude as we see the extent of God's grace. But if you don't have Christ as your righteousness, you will stand alone on your own record of what you have done. And if you are here today and you are not a believer in Christ, I want you to hear this clearly. The Bible says no one will stand before God as righteous on their own merit. It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The human heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. And if you think, you know, I'm a good person. I don't think God would judge me. Then I just want to put before you this mirror of Jesus' commandments to you. This is the mirror that he says that you'll be judged by. It's very simple. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's very simple. Love God and love your neighbor. But I will challenge you to even come up with one full day in your whole life where your words, actions, and thoughts have honored that command fully. Even one day. It is pride that says, I will trust in my own good works. Those not in the book of life are judged by their works, and the consequences are extremely serious. Hear these words again in verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And you might hear that and think, this seems so unfair. The Christians are judged by grace. All their sins are forgiven, and everyone else is judged based on their good works. But that's the whole point. The grace is offered to you right now. You can receive the grace. You can have all your sins forgiven, but it is only through Jesus Christ. And you can't say to God, I want your forgiveness, but I don't want it through Jesus Christ. It doesn't work like that. You don't get to tell God, I want your forgiveness, but not the way you're giving it. It's not, it's not on our terms. It's on his terms, how he wants to give us grace. And it is offered to us. Being a Christian means I don't trust in my own righteousness anymore. I'm a sinner and I need the forgiveness and grace of Christ in my life and I want to now live by that grace. And when an unbeliever is judged by works, they are being given what they wanted. They said their whole life, I stand on my own. I believe in myself. I don't need pity from anyone. You have it your way. But you might find that God is not as affirming of your life as you might have assumed he would be. And this is what his word tells us. Now, I know that this all sounds grim, but what's interesting in the Bible is that for the biblical authors, God's judgment was often seen as good news. And you might say, how could all this be good news? Well, that leads to our final point. Okay, so what we've seen so far is that final judgment gives dignity to every human being by flattening the difference between the great and the small, and God remembers every person's biography. He's going to give time to talk about everyone's life story. And second, that the final judgment involves both grace and works. For those whose names are written in the book of life, it's an experience of grace, and for those whose names are not, they are judged by their works. And so lastly, we learn this, that final judgment is essential for the healing of the creation. Final judgment is essential for the healing of the creation. And, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, many people complain and say, well, why does God let all the evil and suffering happen in the world? If he's a good God, why doesn't he put a stop to all of that? 
And I think when we ask that, we have to ask, okay, if God was going to heal the world, if he was going to, you know, end all the evil and suffering, what would he have to do? What would have to be involved in healing the world? And actually, next week, we're going to see what the healed world is looking like. Uh, we're going to study about the new creation. But before that can happen, before we can get to next week, we need what happens this week first. And this passage says there are two things that need to happen before we can move into a healed world. And the first thing is this, is that the evil done by human beings must be named and condemned. The evil done by human beings must be named and condemned. You cannot have a truly healed world if we just brush everything that you, humans have done under the rug, and let's just pretend like that didn't happen. And this passage is clear. God's not going to do that. Verse 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and uh, Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now, in the Bible, when it uses the image of the sea, the sea is a, a reference to all the nations that are non-Israelite nations. So it's basically everyone that's ever lived in the world is, appears before God, and they're judged. And the evil that they have done is named and condemned by God. Now, there are many people who have pointed out how important this action is. You know, there's Holocaust survivors who say how important what happened in the Holocaust. It has to be named. The story has to be told. It has to be remembered, and it has to be condemned for how wrong it is. There could never be any healing unless we face the reality of what happened. And some of you have experienced that in your own life. You know, the vast majority of abuse that happens in this world happens in secret. No one ever knows about it. And I know there's people in our church who have experienced terrible abuse that for years and years no one even spoke about. And one of the most important acts of healing was to say, this is what happened. And then maybe to have a friend or a counselor or a pastor say, that was wrong. God hates that. God stands against that. And even the act of it just being named and said that it was wrong, you already see that there is some healing that begins to happen. And now you just take that on a small scale that happens in one of our individual lives. Well, that needs to happen on a massive scale for this creation to be all the billions of people who have ever lived. All the crimes against humanity, the terrible abuses that have happened that have just gone on in secret need to be brought into the light. They need to be exposed. And God say, I know that that happened and I stand against it. That, is, that has to happen. We can't just skip into a healed world and pretend like all those bad things never happen. They need to be named and condemned. So for the creation to be healed, this is essential. The evil done by human beings must be named and condemned, but that's not enough. A second thing needs to happen is that death must become no more. Death must become no more. And that, that hope is, is almost too wild to think of but the evil and suffering in the world can't be healed without death, death being done away with. I mean, death is really at the core of that. And incredibly, this, this is what this passage says God has promised to do on that great day. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the reason death is, is uh, such an enemy, it's not only because of all the suffering it causes. You know, all the pain in our bodies— 
cancer and the sicknesses that people get and make their life so difficult. I mean, that's all just kind of the outworkings of death in our bodies. But the worst part about death is that it's the opposite of love. Love binds people together and death tears people apart. And actually, uh, uh, I read recently a, a theologian saying that, that death is the most lonely experience a human being goes through because no one can go with you through it. I mean, of course, the Lord goes through it with us. But when you die, you can't walk through that doorway with someone holding your hand going with you. You have to go alone. It is the most lonely moment, and death is God's enemy. And a healed world must be a world with no death. And it is an incredible promise that one day that will happen. And so who is the only one who could bring such healing to this creation? Who's the one who dignifies all people, flattening the great and the small? It is Jesus who talked to the lowly and touched lepers and healed the sick and cared for the poor and welcomed the tax collectors and prostitutes. And who is the one who offers people grace? It was Jesus who placed himself under final judgment on the cross so that we could face the future without fear. Jesus gives us his good works as we face judgment. And who is the one who can heal the creation? Jesus spoke words of truth, exposing all the abusers. Jesus defeated death in his resurrection. He's the only one who has the authority to throw death and Hades into the lake of fire. And so this is a great hope of final judgment, that the one on the throne is Jesus Christ. And when we stand before the great white throne, the one seated there will be the gracious king that we meet in the Gospels. Who else could we trust to do such an important thing as the judgment of humanity? And so let us approach that day putting our trust in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are deeply humbled before these majestic truths. Uh, Lord, it is both our dignity and, and yet it makes us tremble to think that you take each one of our lives so seriously. And uh, Lord, I pray for every soul present here in this room who have heard these words, the truth that we will stand before you, but also the truth that you offer each one of us grace that Jesus has taken the judgment for us on the cross. And I pray that every life here would know that grace and, and walk through life with gratitude and walk through death and walk through judgment, giving glory not to our good works, but to the good works of Christ, who is our only hope. And so, uh, Lord, lead us to him. Give us assurance, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.